welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ash Kuzarin. On today's show, we're going to talk about California's net neutrality bill and if it's constitutional or not. Last week, Governor Jerry Brown of California has signed the bill into law that many call one of the toughest state bills on net neutrality. Joining us, we have uh, President of Tech Freedom, Baron Zoka, and former legal fellow and now Director of Legal and Regulatory Policy at National Association of Manufacturers, Graham Owens. Guys, thank you for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me. So, Baron, uh, do you want to give us a brief, brief overview of what exactly this all is? Not really, but I will anyway, and I'm sure no one wants to hear it. So, as you know, we've been debating net neutrality for the last 15 years. Congress has made a few attempts to pass legislation. Uh, the last attempt in 2015 um, didn't go anywhere. Republicans offered a bill. Democrats wouldn't come to the table. So the FCC has tried several times to do its own thing. So in 2015, the FCC issued its open internet order. In 2017, the Republican FCC reversed that order. It said that the FCC had misclassified broadband and that broadband is not a Title II common carrier service, as the FCC had said it was in 2015, but rather the Title I lightly regulated information service that the FCC had said it was uh, from the beginning, back in the late 90s on through 2015. And that's where we are today. The FCC therefore repealed most of the, of the net neutrality rules, and importantly for our discussion today, they did not repeal all of them. They left in place the transparency rules. So the federal approach to net neutrality today is that the FCC requires transparency from broadband providers using its Title I jurisdiction, and the rest of the enforcement of, of how net neutrality is, is dealt with, how corporate promises are dealt with, but also marketing claims like that you offer unlimited data, that's left up to, at the federal level, the Federal Trade Commission and then the states, uh, but the states in enforcing their laws of general applicability like their baby FTC acts. And as we'll talk about today, the FCC has, has prevented the states from, from doing more than that, from going beyond that kind of common, uh, that, that sort of generally applicable law that's a consumer protection, unfair competition, that sort of thing. So Graham, uh, the FCC in the Restoring Internet Freedom Order uh, had a preemption statement. What did that uh order preempt? Well, the order, just like the 2015 order, which I think is important to point out, the 2017 our Restoring Internet Freedom Order preempted essentially anything comparable to the 2015 order and anything that went above and beyond. And that's important because California's SB 822, it goes far beyond even what the, 2000, the Obama FCC thought was appropriate. And so this is by far the most extreme version of any sort of net neutrality rules we've seen. And so it's getting into it, it's very clearly preempted and they have good reason. And as I said, there's a lot of background and um, reason for this. This isn't the first FCC to preempt state rules in this. The 2015 order did it. And all when you say 2015, that's the order that, that is was the net neutrality the, order during the Obama administration, the, the, the title two order. Right. And so, it's, yeah, it's, the short of it is yeah, anything that was comparable or stricter than what the 2015 order set forth, um, and so, and, and to be clear, it's it's economic regulation that's specific to telecommunications providers. States can enforce their general laws against fraud and deception and and unfair competition. And they specifically let so the the 1934 Act, the Communications Act that created the FCC and which all the authorities originally derived from, um, kept those 
those general rules of general applicability to the states. That's always been theirs. That comes from common law. That's still the states. And we'll get into that a little later about how they can use those um, general laws. And it also didn't preempt um, state traditional roles and rights of ways and, and other um, pieces that they've always had a right. Because, you know, that is sort of the proprietary, that's their property that's within the state. And so it's not interstate. So they do still maintain the rights over rights of ways. Now, the FCC recently um, undertook another order that we won't get into that deals with rights of ways, but at least under this order, states still have uh, full control over their polls, rights of ways, conduits, and those sorts of things. Let's dive into then the California law itself. What does it exactly do? So it's essentially a copy of the 2015 order plus a few additional um, stricter orders. So in addition to the traditional and, and to, you know the, the base of neutrality, which is no blocking, no throttling, uh, no pay portization, and as he said, the transparency part that the FCC actually kept, um, it also bans zero rating outright, which um, is essentially a way for to you know providers will offer free services, um, free specific services. So that could be anything from T-Mobile's offering free Netflix to consumers. It could also be something like AT&T or Verizon offering schools free access to certain um, learning uh, me, me, services. Free, free meaning it doesn't count against your data plan. It's exactly. zero rated for right. that plan. So you can use as much of it as you want without going into your data. Let's say a school has free access to Wikipedia and other websites that they use in the educational programming. Now this would be illegal. Right. And there are, we've actually seen uh, multitudes of apps and websites that are created specifically for streaming for online education. Everything from childhood education up until Harvard classes that you can now take online and stream. And say a community college or a high school wanted to offer college credit courses and use those services to, to give students a leg up when they go to college. They might, they can't do that anymore. But from a legal perspective, the important point here is that this differs from the federal law, but also illustrates how the state laws could vary from state to state. So we're not talking here about the state, one state simply replicating the 2015 order. We're talking about a state doing its own thing. And therefore we're having the potential for a patchwork of inconsistent state laws. And even if they were consistent, even if they had just implemented the 2015 order exactly, they could be interpreted very differently. It was not clear how the 2015 order would deal with zero rating. And if you had a carbon copy of that order state by state, you you would not know how one state was going to interpret it versus another. That's the whole point here. And the reason why we want a federally consistent approach for inherently interstate services. Yeah, they call it reasonable network practices. And obviously we've been debating what reasonable is in a multitude of contexts in consumer protection law since it was created. And we still don't have a bright line rule for what reasonable data security practices, what reasonable privacy practices are, what reasonable anything is. And so to think that at California and Washington and New York, if they all ended up passing their own laws, are all going to agree on reasonable, it's just not going to happen. It's not reasonable. It's not reasonable. Exactly. Uh, so uh, clearly that kind of shows how, you know, if you're a national provider like Verizon and from New York says that is that you should, or maybe they mandate that you offer a zero rating to schools and you're a national provider and California saying you can't, well, you literally can't comply with both. And, and that we'll get into now is exactly why the FCC preempted 
states from enacting these laws. So let's dive into the history of the preemption. Give us a quick overview so no one will fall asleep on their morning commute. Yeah, so preemption is essentially a doctrine derived from the Supremacy Clause that says that of the Constitution. Of the Constitution. The federal right. Constitution. The federal. Unlike the California Constitution, which is so full of crap you couldn't find anything. So simple as the Supremacy Clause. Right. So the, the Supremacy Clause of the federal United States Constitution says, you know, that the federal laws where they conflict with state laws are supreme. And within that doctrine is preemption, which is unlike the Supremacy Clause is um, not required. The federal government is empowered to tell states they can or cannot regulate in a certain area um, if they so choose versus um, supremacy clause is just says if they conflict, the federal government wins. But the key there is that the FCC, since it was created, has a long history of preempting states because communications law are just naturally more interstate and, you know, involved in commerce. And those are powers that are inherently left to the federal government. And so, you know, since their creation, they've uh, preempted everything from cable services, and most recently, in 2007, and even this year, they preempted uh, what's called voice over IP services. States from regulating those, um, which is what a is a voice over IP service? Voice telephony on the internet. People use it all the time. They don't even realize they're doing it. When you make a call in Hangouts, for example, from your computer, that's VoIP. But the important thing, Dan, is it uses broadband. And so it's essentially a service within broadband. And obviously, if the federal government can preempt a service within broadband, why could they not preempt broadband, broadband itself? Um, and state so, regulation of, of state broadband. Regu- right. So these uh, Eighth Circuit VoIP cases are important because the federal government preempts those under, or the FCC preempts those under what is called the impossibility exception. And it's a unique uh, preemption doctrine to the FCC. And what it essentially says is there's a two-part test. And one if the service being preempted is inherently interstate and it's impossible or just impractical even to separate the interstate and interstate components and and it would uh, frustrate or conflict with a federal policy, it's preempted. And let, it's, let, let me jump here and explain. The reason this is spe- specific to the FCC is that the FCC and the states have a long history of trying to regulate telephony where there, and I dealt with this in private practice, there was such a thing for at least a while as purely intrastate telephony. Uh, so if you lived in Dayton and were trying to call the next town over, that would be a purely intrastate service and your state regulatory commission could regulate that. The FCC, however, would regulate your call to your cousin in the next state. So that that's why this doctrine developed at the FCC. Now, some people here have said, well, well, we only want the FCC to uh, to regulate the interstate parts of broadband and, and each state should be able to regulate the intrastate part of broadband. What Graham's saying is that that's um, that's just not that's nonsense. Uh, it's nonsense. It, it, it's you nonsense. just can't separate the two because, you know, I can send a packet of information through whether it's wireless or wireline to, you know, a friend in the same state, but it could very well go through a server farm in the state over or even 10 states over. And so here you are, you know, your information is carrying through other states where it's regulated differently. And so it's, and the FCC made a, a decision in their preemption state that, you know, it is impossible and it is impractical. And they did the same with the VoIP cases. And what's important is those who are saying the FCC can't preempt here are saying that they uh, have essentially disavowed their authority to regulate broadband. Well, under the exact same regulatory regime we have right now um, with the RIFO, 
the same thing we had in 2007. And the courts had no problem finding the SEC as their preemption authority. Because remember, their preemption authority is not derived from the Restoring Internet Freedom Order. It's derived from the Constitution. And so regardless of the Restoring Internet Freedoms Order preemption statement, the impossibility exception will still survive. And so this, this argument that, oh, well, in the Restoring Internet Freedom Order, they said they don't have authority to regulate broadband, so that must mean they can't have the authority to preempt it too. That's also nonsense. Because again, that was the same regulatory regime we had in 2007 when they preempted broadband or uh, VoIP. Let me just clarify here, because I, I myself, I think I've been guilty of this in the past. When I have explained the 2017 Restoring Internet Freedom Order to people, I have tried to say, look, they, the FCC rolled back the net neutrality rules, not over a policy disagreement, but because they decided that they didn't have authority to issue them. Now, when you say that, it can be very unclear what exactly you mean. And if you say something very broad, like, well, the FCC decided it didn't have the authority to issue the rules, that can sound a lot like, oh, the FCC decided it didn't have any authority at all. They're very different things. And the difference is what the FCC said in that order was simply, of course, we have authority over broadband. It's an interstate service. It's it's a communication service. It's subject to the Communications Act. But we have to decide whether it goes into the Title I information service, lightly regulated bucket, or the Title II telecommunications common carrier service. And the FCC simply moved it from Title II back to Title I. They didn't disclaim authority or jurisdiction over it as a form of communication. So that that's the rhetorical game that's being played here by by advocates of state regulation. And clearly they didn't because they're still imposing the transparency rule on all broadband providers. So, you know, it's just nonsense for them to say, oh, well, we have no authority over the broadband, but yet you have to be transparent and we're going to enforce it if you aren't. Um, so, and, and there's an important piece here too, is that, you know, throughout history as Congress um, has Every now and again, you know, we had 1934 Act, there's the 86, 84 Cable Act, and then again, the 1996 Telecommunications Act. The SEC has that long history of preempting states and these communications um, spaces throughout history. And yet Congress, not one time, ever took any effort to, to reel that in. And so it's important to realize that Congress has had multiple chance to say, FCC, you know, you don't, your preemption authority is going too far. You're imposing on states something we didn't intended. But they haven't. And it's been, you know, the FCC has been very clear in their attempts to preempt more so than any other agency. So I think it's a thing that Congress has essentially blessed this. So uh, this is a lot of legal stuff. But if the audience wants to read this for themselves, it's actually pretty easy to follow because it's only 10 paragraphs in the order. So if you go to the Restoring Internet Freedom Order and you read paragraphs 194 to 204, and in particular, it's really 198, 199 and footnote 744, it's all laid out there. The FCC goes through this history of cases that Graham has mentioned, and they've explained that they've made these decisions in the past, and the courts have given them deference in making that decision. Yeah. And a little seamless plug here, if you want an even less legalese version of that, um, we have a white paper coming out that I authored on this very topic that right. walks so through the history. So instead of 10 paragraphs, it's you 100 pages. <laughs> For the law students out there. But um, it, it's... Believe me, the, the history of it is a lot shorter than that than it is in uh, any other legal reading. Uh, but yeah, so you know, moving forward again, Department of Justice has stepped in and immediately challenged the California SB 822 bill um, on preemption grounds with a brief touch on dormant commerce clause, which we'll get into. Um, but it's really not surprising that they did so and that they did so quickly. Um, and 
a lot of folks are saying that, you know, we're going to have to wait and see if the restoring internet freedom order is going to be upheld. Um, but as I mentioned, it doesn't really matter if the restoring internet freedom order is upheld because the FCC's preemption authority is derived from the constitution and not that order specifically. And, and, and the statute. And, and the statute correctly. And the restoring internet freedom, the FCC's authority to regulate as a title, broadband as a title one instead of title two service was upheld by the, uh, Supreme Court in 2005 in a case called Brandex. The Supreme Court has already dealt with this. Um, the DC Circuit is going to look at it and be like, this is exactly what has been dealt with by the court under precedent, and they're just going to dismiss that. Um, so, But regardless, the preemption authority and, and their authority to, to, dis, to overrule the FCC's or the California law is very likely to stand. And now, now, that said, the DOJ has asked for a preliminary injunction. It will be interesting to see what the court does. I mean, it is possible the court could simply say, fine, we'll enjoin this law pending the resolution of the D.C. Circuit litigation over the restoring Internet Freedom Order. That wouldn't be that surprising. It doesn't really mean that the court thinks that somehow that order is going or decision is going to change the outcome of this case. But one way or another, I will tell you right now that I will eat my hat if California somehow wins this case. It's just not going to happen. Will you have to put hot sauce on it or are you just going to We have a whole it? bunch of sriracha sauce in the office. I think it'll be very tasty. I might wash it first. It's kind of gross from rowing. We'll do our first video cast. <laughs> um, but so anyway, the, you know, the challenge is almost, or the, the restoring internet freedom order is almost assuredly going to be upheld. And if it does, uh, if it does, then the states really have no leg to stand on. But if it isn't, then they'll argue that there's no clear preemption statement. But as I mentioned, um, they can very easily issue a new declaratory order using their possibility exception. The, the FCC. The FCC. So um, anyway, the, the, I think we should now move into, you know, why the preemption, like what exactly they're preempting and, and what that's going to look like and the reasons for the preemption outside of even the possibility exception. Um, and the important thing here is the going, as we said, the interstate nature of broadband of the internet. Right. And the Supreme court said immediately after the uh, 1996 act and the ACLU v. Reno case, I believe that, you know, internet is this wholly, not just interstate medium, but a global form of communication, right? This is the first form of communication where it connects the entire world. So not only is it not interstate, it's not only interstate where you can keep it within the state. This is a global network. This is as interstate as it gets. And we'll walk through exactly what- So what is interstate? So it means that it's crosses borders and doesn't see well, like, borders. Like, like with telephony, right? Where, you know, you can make a call that goes purely from my, my house to across the street and where all of the architecture of the network is in that state. That was a purely intrastate service. Whereas with internet services, my, my data may go through a server in Ireland just for me to be able to use Facebook. It's So it, it's just not practical to separate it into inter and intrastate services. Right. And, and, and even simpler example would be railroads, right? Highways. These are, you know, roads connect states. They run through them. And there are cases where Supreme Court said, you know, Illinois, you can't regulate trucking. You can't say trucks, you got to use this mudguard specifically when no other states are saying that. And in fact, some states are saying you can't use that type of mudguard because trucks, when they're moving goods throughout the state, inherently go through multiple states to get from A to B. And the same is true for the packets of information that go across broadband. They naturally run from state to state, from server farms and computers and phones and wireless. And you could be a wireless carrier or a person with a wireless plan and you bought it and 
California or Virginia and you travel to California, it still works, right? I, I just want to note here that the, if you think about it that way, the order, the, rather the law in California really has two parts. One is purely about network management. And that that is just obviously not practical to, to try to break down into inter and intrastate services. Y- you, you could sort of imagine that the marketing practices or the, the way that the pricing is done for zero rating, if that's all that California had focused on, they would be in ever so slightly better a position because then at least they could say, well, we're only talking about how your billing works inside the state of California. But even that is hugely problematic. One, because the, these networks are, are run across multiple state lines. So it's not actually so easy to just to draw that distinction. And two, because of the example that Graham just gave, where once we're talking about mobile broadband, you can get a plan in any state and use it anywhere. So these are just examples of the kind of complexity that uh, the courts have generally and very clearly said are going to be left to the expert agency to resolve. The agency is going to get broad deference here, and that's why they'll win. And when you look at the FCC's order, they actually don't go into that much factual detail. As I said, it's only 10 paragraphs. And that's because, number one, they've already been through all of this factual detail in many orders before. And number two, the FCC is going to get deference. Um, Graham, so how about the Dormant Commerce Clause? Does it come into play? Yeah, so even if the preemption argument somehow fails, which again, we don't think it will, um, that doesn't mean that states can now somehow freely regulate the internet. The Dormant Commerce Clause, another doctrine derived from a piece of the Constitution, is obviously derived from the Commerce Clause. And one of the few things left to the federal government that was as reserved, not given to the states, was to regulate commerce. And the idea behind that's very clear, as we said. We need our economy. You know, we are one nation, even though we're 50 states, and our economy is together, and we need that to work freely. And so states can't impose laws that in that burden interstates or discriminate against other states. We can't have states get in trading wars like we have Trump getting in trade wars right now. Like, we just can't have that or our whole economy. Because, because this did happen under the Articles of Confederation. That was the purpose of the Commerce Clause. The reason it's called the Dormant Commerce Clause is it means that where Congress has not acted, has not enacted a law that could be an affirmative basis for preemption. Even then, the Commerce Clause, while it's sleeping and hasn't been exercised, it's dormant. Uh, even then, the Commerce Clause can come into effect to uh, invalidate state laws. Right. And what that means here is that there are about three or four different ways that the Dormant Commerce were in situations where the Dormant Commerce Clause applies. And most relevant here is for um, services or, or uh, industries that are inherently interstate and require a uniform national framework. Uh, in the past, those have been, as I said, railroads, um, trucking industries, highways. Uh, those types of things just run through states. They you know, inher- are inherently interstate and they inherently require a national framework. And for those types of um, industries and services, Congress, uh, the courts and have said f- for a long time that states really just don't have a place here. And no matter how well-intentioned these laws are, they just will, they, they raise this risk of a, of a potpourri and impossible um, laws to get through. And the one case to actually go through this is an early uh, Southern District of New York case called um, Pataki. And, and the court there very correctly said that, you know, this is the most inherently interstate, the internet is the most inherently interstate service we've ever had. And it just inherently requires this uniform national framework. And really, that's the only precedent we have right now. But I don't see any court really overturning and, it. And it's really clear. Yeah. 
And, and I just will note that while this case is not likely to be resolved on Dormant Commerce Clause grounds because the preemption case is so strong, the Dormant Commerce Clause is going to come up in, in for example, the challenge to California's privacy law. All right. So you're saying that this is out of authority of states. What states can do if they are worried about making sure their customers and consumers um, are taken care of and no one is, you know, using their market power to play with them? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, so they can do the same thing now that the federal government can do. They can use what they have baby FTC acts, just like the FTC now has the authority to regulate broadband and um, internet service providers that engage in unfair, deceptive practices. The states have, every state has a consumer protection law. uh, And most of those are almost identical to the FTCs. And they have every right to, you know, bring enforcement actions against ISPs that lie about um, service plans, say that, you know, it's unlimited, but it's not really unlimited. And they throttle at the end, or if they're promise you that they, um, you know, won't, or will provide service in certain emergencies, as we saw. I mean, if, if like with the fire um, department and uh, where was it? We, we did a whole episode on this I- I issue, which we California. can link to in the show notes. It was also but, but, California. You know, if any of the Verizon, Verizon or any of these ISPs engage in these practices and promise something and then don't deliver, that's a deceptive practice, which derived from common law tort, uh, tort of fraud. And they can't act fraudulent. And so every state has every right to bring enforcement actions and hold them accountable if they lie or if they engage in sort of unfair, whether it's unfair to consumers or unfair in the competitive antitrust context, states have every right to um, regulate those and use their general police powers. And, and you know, again, this, the FCC's order makes that abundantly clear. Yeah, I just want to note here that th- this is really important, that the state's interest here in general is in enforcing their police powers against c- harm to consumers. The argument will be made, well, the FCC... Uh, shouldn't be able to preempt here because the states are just exercising their police powers. The, it, the bottom line on the preemption doctrine is the states, they can't just invoke their police power. They have to show that there's a clear harm and clearly established uh, problems, which I think they really can't for the rules in general. These rules are, even by the FCC's own admission, essentially prophylactic. And to the extent that they're going to go after prophylactic harms, the preemption case law will require them to demonstrate that harm and enforce their generally applicable laws against that, which is what the baby FTC and the antitrust acts do. Yeah. And the reason these bills or these acts don't violate um, interstate commerce and and the dormant commerce clause and and aren't going to be preempted is because when and ISP engages in this deceptive behavior or whatever it might be, and they harm consumers in that state. What the Supreme Court says, they have to show that, you know, you can say, look, they harmed people in my state. This is actual interstate harm. This happened in California and to California consumers. And so, of course, the court is going to say you have every right to protect consumers within your state. You know, you can't go over and say, I saw some New Mexico service providers harm their, you know, let New Mexico deal with that. But but you have to do it in a way that doesn't unduly burden interstate commerce, as we discussed in, with the Dormant Commerce Clause. Yeah. And you will see a, a just like the gold rush, you're going to see a data rush where every consumer on the West Coast goes to California to buy their wireless plan now to get the protections. And then they're going to go back and be like, well, I have a California plan. You can't do this. But there is one more thing that California can do, which is California has the largest congressional delegation of any state in the country. And if California's congressional delegation decided that we want, that we we're going to have federal legislation. We would already have had it 
honestly, that's all that, that we need is for especially Democrats in Congress to just come to the table. Tech Freedom is working on a, on a compromise bill that we hope that would, would attract the support of, of lawmakers. So that really the governor should be in the lead saying that it's up to his congressional delegation to, to do that. And, and it is ironic that California would be opening the door or Pandora's box, if you will, to state-by-state state regulation of the internet because no state has more to lose than California for opening the door to state-by-state to state regulation. Does anyone in Sacramento really want people in Alabama or Texas regulating the internet? That's not going to turn out well. And yet those are the legal issues at stake in this case. Exactly. And, and you know, even more so if, as many are predicting, if the house are to flip um, in November, and, and Nancy Pelosi becomes um, speaker again. I mean, they really then have no excuse. I mean, they—it's they, a very good chance that they have the leader of the House of Representatives. And rather than focusing on winning those campaigns and making sure they have the House and getting Congress to enact strong uh, and fair net neutrality laws, like we haven't seen anything. Um, we we've tried hard and we've walked around and we haven't seen any Democrat um, from California's. Uh, delegation stand up, say, yeah, let's do this. So wrapping up, what would you say is the main idea that we have blocking California from saving the whole uh, country? And what do you think are the chances of Democrats actually focusing on the net neutrality compromise instead of zero? Yeah. I mean, the only positive might come from all of this costly litigation and I mean, wasted taxpayer resources is the, all right, you know, all right. If, if the FCC over here says they can't, um, do this because they don't have the authority under, to regulate under Title II, and the states clearly can't do this. And if they really need a court to tell them this, fine. Eventually, they're going to run out of options. They're going to run out of scapegoats. Yeah, but, but by then we'll have had another presidential election. I mean, look, the point is this is about political theater, and the point of each and every one of these efforts is to create another round of litigation to just drag the issue out further. So there's an excuse for lawmakers not to resolve an issue that has been a cash cow for activist groups in this area and a winning politi- political issue for Democrats. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. Yeah, they're going to ride it through November. And- and on a such high note, I want to thank you gentlemen for joining me. We're going to link to Graham's 100-page paper in the show notes and every other uh, piece of content we've created on this issue because we've created a lot. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.